that might be the moment from this movie and that propels it into being one of the moments in all of movie history it's like it's it's up there with dorothy singing in and wizard of oz is like just an absolutely yeah. iconic moment it definitely evokes that I, I don't i think i put it on a different tier than that but i can understand where you're coming from definitely Welcome, friends, to episode 295 of the Inked Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Roald Dahl's 1964 novel, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Mel Stewart's 1971 film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Welcome to our uh, holiday special episode, something that we've been doing uh, ever since we started the podcast. Every time this episode comes around, we have something that's like, borderline christmas movie uh maybe maybe you have to kind of stretch to to fit it into the definition i think this one is definitely not a christmas movie but i think it is like spiritually uh close enough to where i'm comfortable covering it um because of the you know the plentiful chocolate the the warm sort of themes uh family oriented uh focus to the film and the book and then also, you know, it's just like nostalgic for me for for childhood. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you have a problem with it, take that up to the Warner Brothers. They released Wonka during this time period, right? So I think it's <laughs> that's uh, true. It's fitting. That's kind of why we're covering this when we are. And then also, you know, it feels festive enough. It's it's pretty yeah. magical. Definitely. Whenever you got like it's like a bunch of children. There's like singing in the movie. Like I don't know. It felt it felt appropriate to me, even though I realized like there really is no Christmas element to it. Um, candy, but regardless, I it's close enough, I think. Yeah, candy. That's really the main thing. But I mean, like candy's good any time of year, I guess. But I definitely eat probably the most amount of candy. Okay, that's arguable because I definitely eat a lot during Halloween, too. But like Christmas, there's a lot of chocolate. There's a lot of just like baked goods around constantly. I don't know about you, but a lot of sweets. I don't think I've ever told you this, but my grandfather on my mom's side had a chocolate factory. Oh, um, I did yeah, not know and that. So I, you know, I think of this movie a lot along with my grandfather and kind so you're of like a chocolate factory heir one day you're gonna come into ownership of some magical chocolate factory wonderland yeah i mean i haven't heard any news about that yet <laughs> but, but it's possible uh the yeah he would you know he he would send like all year round he'd send a lot of chocolate but specifically i can remember him sending these like santa shaped kind of chocolate bites and this movie makes me think of him and he's passed now so it's a cool way to remember him i love that man this whole project has so much that we can get into um, from all the different adaptations. There's been, there's a new movie out. There's everything that went on with Roald Dahl as an author. Um, and then the focus in on this particular book. So it was kind of too much and we had to edit down, especially to get it into a single episode. So the focus of this coverage is going to be on the background of the book itself. And then the 1971 film, we're not really going to talk about the 2005 uh, version. Maybe we'll do that as a bonus episode one day. I assume we probably will. Maybe we'll talk about the new Wonka at some point as a bonus episode or a mainline episode. I don't know. Um, but we're not really going to get into that either. We are aware of it. We know it's in theaters right now. Like we already said, that's why we're covering it. So um, that's that's what we're going to do here. I will point you as a listener to our episode we did on James and the Giant Peach, 
because I actually thought we did a good job of, of delving into Dahl's background um, in a fairly brief amount of time towards the introduction, like the first 15 minutes of that episode. So from now on, when we cover Roald Dahl, I'm going to point people towards that one if they want to like see a broader view of who he was as a person. Um, whereas we're going to focus more in on the background of this particular book. And Roald Dahl uh, was the screenwriter, the the credited screenwriter on the film. So that'll be interesting to talk about because there was also kind of somebody else who was an uncredited writer. And, and we'll, we'll get into kind of Roald Dahl's reaction to a lot of that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know much about the background of the movie. I, I deliberately stayed away from that so I could be surprised for what you're what you're bringing to it. I focus my research mostly on the book. Um, which we'll we'll lead off with, I think, first is, is talking about the book, its background. Um, but we're not going to do an entire plot synopsis of the book. It's pretty similar to the movie with some key differences, and we'll touch on those as we progress through the film. Um, but just to start off, I want to say that this, this story was originally inspired by Roald Dahl's experience uh, of chocolate companies during his school days. Um, Cadbury would often send test packages to the school children in exchange for their opinions on new products. At the time, around the 1920s, Cadbury and Roundtrees were England's two largest chocolate makers, and they each tried to steal trade secrets by sending spies, posing as employees, and uh, into each other's factories, inspiring Dahl's idea for the recipe-stealing thieves. Because of this, both companies became highly protective of their chocolate-making processes. It was a combination of the secrecy and the elaborate, often gigantic, machines in the factory that inspired Dahl to write this story. So the book would first come out in 1964 in the U.S., followed 11 months later uh, in the U.K. Um, it was titled Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The book's sequel, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, was written by Dahl in 1971 and published in 1972, which is actually probably smart. That came out around the same time in the, as the movie, I'm realizing. <laughs> yep. Um, and he had also planned to write a third book in the series, but never finished it. So who knows if at some point we'll, we'll see pieces of that coming out from the estate, because there's quite active, which we can get into a little bit. Yeah, well, I want to get your your thoughts on this book. Um, just first time reading it for me. I, I don't know about you. Uh, it was one I had never actually read. So yeah, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think I'd ever read it before. And it's got some magic to it. You know, I think I, I understand why people, especially around this time period, would, would respond well to it. I think there's some relatability here for children of many different walks of life, many different you know, wealth statuses and it's clever. I like the, the, a lot of the wordplay that's going on is, is fun. Um, and then, but then my biggest reaction just walking away from it now is I had heard some stuff about the Oompa Loompas and some of the stuff that was in this book, but walking away from it now, I'm like, man, there's a bunch of stuff in this. It's like, does not hold up and is highly offensive in my opinion. Uh, yeah. And that, that kind of like stained this reading for me. This is a huge topic of discussion we can get into. I guess you kind of opened the door for it. So we can lead off with our discussion of some Oompa Loompas here. Um, they have come in many different ways. The version you read, which I assume is the one that I read, because it's the most widely accessible, especially to American readers, is the revised edition where Roald Dahl actually did some revisions based off of feedback from publishers and readers. Um, to his original published version that came out in 1964, which was actually far more offensive. Um, so in the original version, the Oompa Loompas were actually uh, dark-skinned pygmies from Africa that uh, Willy Wonka went and brought over in crates, you know, with uh, poked holes in them. And I think that's in the book. Like, so some of these details are still in there, but they're not Africans. They're from Loompa land right. um, in, the, in the change. And there he made them light skinned with like a rosy hair. 
um, to to distance it from the you know real African but even uh, slave so, trade. Even with those changes, though, I felt a lot a lot yeah. of like implied racism, like sort of yeah. it came off as like tone deaf. So we talked about his background. The guy's a fighter pilot, ace, like all these confirmed kills, potential spy, um, storied military career, but also was you know infamous for his you know often considered misogynistic de depictions of women you know racism in his books um coded stuff now he always would push against that whenever he was like called out on it you know he was one of those people who would probably say people are being too sensitive that's not what he meant but you know the guy's dead now so he can't really defend himself so it's all been moved on to the estate and there's been a lot of like trying to retcon things there has been some apologies made um in particular he made some anti-semitic remarks um, that his family has since apologized for. Um, we touched on that in our James and the Giant Peach episode. So that's all the context for like who this guy was. And he went in and he did some of these edits based off of feedback he was getting. And he was like, yeah, yeah, this is probably not a good look that they're all dark skinned from literally from Africa in the original version. Um, this doesn't look good. He's, he tried to make it like explicit that they weren't slaves and that they were being paid in these cacao beans. That was like agreed upon with the tribe leaders. Um, but that wasn't enough. You know what I mean? Um, now, a lot of these details are still in there. They are described as, as wearing like deer skins and leaves. And um, there's a, just a lot of similarities with like what you would imagine, like African tribal people being described as. Yeah. The area they come from has a wild beasts and they yep. feel like savages, according to like like and Willy Wonka has now saved them and brought them to a safer, yep. better area. Which was a big uh, speaking point for a lot of people who were defending the slave trade, even still when this, you know, when this book came out at the time was like, oh, you know, it was actually, you know, for their own good, because we were saving them from the dangerous lands that they're from. And like, it's a lot of that. It's really horrible shit, right? Yeah. Um, and you are trying to have these little whimsical dudes working at the at the uh, chocolate factory who are going to sing songs and kind of break the fourth wall a little bit and be like fun little helpers. And unfortunately, you're getting caught up in all this stuff. So in the years that came after, like, they started backing it off, backing it off, right? So you see him do the revised version, which is what we read here, which backs it off. But I, I agree. It still made me uncomfortable. You could see that a lot of stuff stuff was coded in certain ways. It wasn't like directly saying it like they're from Africa. It was saying they're from Lumpa land and all this stuff. But you could just, I don't know, you could read between the lines. Even, even though they're not dark skinned, it's still uh, very much like a, you know, industrialized nation looking down on a, you know, uh, more technologically rudimentary like society right and saying like we are better than you we can come in and save you or hire you and like that's somehow improving your life and all this stuff it's like very savory right like white savior because he's like oh i'm saving them from all these terrible you know creatures um so there's all that right that goes on but that's where it's at right for a long time um of course the movie uh, Mel Stewart does his own thing with it. He changes how the Oompa Loompas looked. He, he keeps a lot of the descriptions, but like they don't they don't wear the deer skins. They, they look a little different. They look a little more fantastical. Um, and then we've seen other versions of it in the years that followed where they go even more fantastical, um, which is, I think, good if you're going to include something like the Oompa Loompas. But um, in 2023, so since we last covered Roald Dahl, um, his UK publisher came out with this announcement that they're going to be releasing revised editions of all of his books where they've brought in like an independent consulting company 
that is um, going to employ a bunch of sensitivity readers to come in and make changes to all of his works to remove anything that could be considered sort of offensive to modern audiences. Okay, um, I have misgivings about this, right? When I hear that, I'm a little bit worried. Um, I understand the impetus, right? And I understand that it looks good, but I also know that there's a lot of crass materialism happening behind the, you know, behind the scenes here. This is a billion dollar franchise. This is Wonka is coming out and they know that and they want to sell these books. So they're, they're saying, like, how can we make this book more appealing and, you know, not something that people are going to be, you know, writing long essays about how problematic they are. Um, so they come in and what they decide to do is instead of like replacing anything, because um, I guess they didn't want to like put words in Roald Dahl's mouth, they end up just cutting a ton of stuff. And because of it, you could argue that a lot of the rich detail is just stripped from the book, period. So I'll read you an example of just like a little section. This is just one of hundreds of, of, of changes that were made. So in the original 1964 text, and be warned, this is definitely the most, most problematic version. The Oompa Loompa bowed and smiled, showing beautiful white teeth. His skin were, was almost pure black, and the top of his fuzzy head came just above the height of Mr. Wonka's knee. He wore the unusual deerskin slung over his shoulder. So that gets changed in the version we read. The Oompa Loompa bowed and smiled, showing beautiful white teeth. His skin was rosy white, his hair was golden brown, and the top of his head came just above the height of Mr. Wonka's knee. He wore the usual deerskin slung over his shoulder. So you can see like there's just been some small changes. It's still there. And this was co-signed, importantly, by Roald Dahl. He made these changes himself. 2023's version, this is after Roald Dahl has passed away. And by the way, he explicitly said that he never wanted his publishers to change a word of his books. It was like one of the things he said before he died. Um, this is what it says now. An Oompa Loompa appeared as if from nowhere and stood beside him. Wow. Yep. So that's, this is what I'm talking it. about. Yeah. <laughs> it just it just cuts everything. Um, and so descriptions of characters, like the, the stuff with Gloop, like it, it, he's not described as being this like enormously fat character. And we, we'll talk about it. Like there's definitely some troubling, problematic stuff about fat shaming that goes on with Gloop as a character. Instead of changing it, they just cut it all out. So now he's just kind of like a bland character. Like every character has almost no physical descriptors at all. So it's kind of a head scratcher for me. You know, we're two progressive dudes. We we definitely can understand why people would want to do this, but there's another side to it where it's like, I'm also someone who wants to preserve something in its authentic form for history's sake. Cause now like when we look back at Roald Dahl, like what version is the version over time you're looking back at a piece of art that came out of a very particular time period. Like it's okay for it to be sort of morally gray in the context of how it fit into society. I don't think we need to like completely wash all of that away and continue to make it, you know, theoretically accessible to modern audiences. There are new writers writing stuff all the time. We could just go with some of them. And I think it's okay to let something be, a discussion point. If you're going to have your kids read it, you can have a discussion with your kids and say like, this is what came out at the time. This is why maybe they thought it was okay, but this is why we don't talk this way anymore or what have you. Um, 
I, I don't know if I'm explaining myself clearly on what I'm trying to say here, but what are your thoughts on, on this, these changes that have been made? We talk a lot about with the films and books that we read, how they feel like time ca capsules for their time period. And ultimately, like I said, this, the, the fairly overt racism in the, in the story stained the reading for me. And that's just kind of part of the baggage of the story at that point. I, it, I think in changing it so fundamentally, it's no longer the story that was written. And like you said, like it, it, I can understand also saying, I know the reputation of this story rather than reading some revised 2023 version. I'm just going to find another author, another kid's book to read my kids. Because if that's not a, a you know, a subject you want to broach with them at that time period. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'm for this kind of thing. This feels like a complete overhaul of yeah. all of his work in a, in a broad sense. And that just feels like it's 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 difficult to get that right. Still keep the spirit of it, because what we talk about all the time is like adapting someone else's words. And if you're going to try to adapt Roald Dahl's work, you have to be an artist that's also like so in tune with what his intentions were there. And then, yes, change. It would be excellent if you could somehow maintain his voice and change it to, you know, all of the problematic pieces. But it's kind of not possible to do that at this point. So, uh, yeah, I, I just want to address a couple of things you said there. Like, to me, this is not an act of adaptation at all. It's more about just like there's the original art in all of its, you know, ugliness and beauty preserved. And we can look at that and we can say, I want to adapt this into a modern film. And when you're jumping mediums, you're bringing in a new art artistic uh, person in to uh, reimagine, as we've talked about many times. And that's what we get in this adaptation we're about to talk about. That's a separate thing than going in and editing the original, especially after the author has died and can't okay any of it. Yeah. Um, it would be, again, another thing to say, we are going to bring in another author, maybe a modern author, and with the, you know, blessings of the Roald Dahl estate we're going to write a, a new version of this book and it's going to be co-authored between two people Roald Dahl and this other author who came in and like heavily modified and edited it that would be a route you could go I'm not saying people would want that but at least it would be sort of artistically honest in a way that this doesn't feel to me yeah. it's a lot of like anonymous people from this like uh this institute who have who are making these changes and that you know they're ostensibly small changes but it adds up to a lot of just stripping away of details. And um, I don't know. I wasn't surprised when there was kind of a big backlash to this. And the U.S., uh, France, I think uh, Spain, and maybe Greece. I saw there's like four countries that have basically said they're not going to publish these revised editions. So in the U.S., you're still getting the uh, the 70s version where Roald Dahl had, did the, had done the edits himself. And, I, and honestly, I agree with that. As much as I'm someone who is all for, you know, like using sensitivity readers as an author, when you can still interact with them and make decisions based off of what you want in your art and just getting that perspective can be helpful to you and you can make the decision. But this kind of stuff after someone's died and yeah, I don't know, it just rubs me the wrong way. It, it, it sets a bad precedent, I think, for all kinds of classic literature where you could start doing this to lots of books and going in and just deleting stuff. Um, it's a weird way because then like at a certain point, have we completely tried to rehabilitate his image in, in a way that like strips away all of the things that he said in real life and did in real life that makes him sort of a, you know, difficult figure to talk about. And I don't know. If, I don't think I like that. Like it, we should be honest about who he was and, and the kinds of beliefs he had and the kinds of things that got into his writing. However incorrect they may have been. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
Uh, anyway, we can't like belabor this too much. So I just wanted to, you, you yeah. talked about the Oompa Loompas. Let's talk about it there a little bit. Um, then we can move on. Um, it's a hot button issue. I'm not sure I fully explained my point of view here in, in a way that I'm happy with, but oh, well, that's the nature of podcasting, yeah. right? <laughs> well, and like I said, I think the story did have a lot of magic. There were some things that stuck out to me like that. I think that, yeah. um, it's so much more focused on Charlie than I ever would have expected. Yeah. Um, much more. Yeah. Agreed. And that's a major change in adaptation. And then I think that's why we one day get the Tim Burton version that like kind of tried to stay more true to the Roald Dahl Charlie focus story. Yeah. I mean, I'd have to rewatch that thing, but yeah, I don't know. I, I'm going to withhold, I'm gonna withhold judgment on yeah. that for, for a bonus episode because I, I remember not liking that movie hardly at all. And uh, I would have to relook at it to see why. Um, it's been a long time. Oh, uh, one other thing I will say. Felicity Dahl, 2017, she does an interview where she talks about the original version of this book that was never published before it was even published, in which uh, Roald Dahl's original conception of Charlie was that he was going to be a little black boy. Um, but his agent talked him out of it, saying that it wouldn't appeal to readers. Take that know. as you I don't will. know how to feel about that at all, because that yeah. kind of feels like J.K. Rowling saying that Hermione's black as well. So I don't know. That's yeah. the whole thing. Well, I, yeah, but he he did. I, I, I've heard that like. And, and this holds true with reading the book is I don't remember any descriptions of his skin color. Like it's just kind of omitted. And yeah. I think that's, that's how it ended up being. It was kind of ambiguous, whereas he had deliberately said that, but what he went on to do within this original version of the book is that um, the details are getting a little fuzzy for me, but it was like the boy gets trapped in a chocolate mold and the mold fills with chocolate, like molten chocolate, <laughs> which sounds like he's being tortured, but I don't know if that's how it, how it plays out or not. And then it like hardens on him and he's stuck in it like overnight. And then he like witnesses a, like Wonka's house being broken into or something. It's very different. It's very weird. Hmm. Um, but then he ends up breaking out of it later. But Dahl had said that like his original concept of that was that it was supposed to be like a metaphor for being trapped in like the stereotype of your race. And he was trying to like, explore race in a way that I'm sure he thought was clever. Um, and I don't want to give him credit for it. It never came out, so we can't really analyze the actual facts behind it. Felicity Dahl in, in 2017 was definitely trying to kind of give him some credit. And it's it's part of this this overall, like, we're going to we're going to try and smooth all these rough points out in his image. And we're going to package him as like the ever lasting children's book author that we are going to continue to read and love for generations to come. Right. And that, you know, completely unproblematic now is what it's like trying to do. And I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. And yeah, I guess just one, one more thought on it is that uh, I agree. I enjoyed the book overall, even as there was things in there that I, you know, bounced off of, you know, it, it was a warm read as a fun read. I, I think um, doll has a great sense of making these like, morally just children characters who we want to root for who are facing immense hardship like charlie here is incredibly poor you know he's he's in this family that like they're all struggling he's you know a loaf of bread is a feast for him he's so likable in that sense and we want to see him succeed and this miracle happens to him he gets the golden ticket like that's a fun story to read um and and a lot of the magic that's in this film is absolutely in the book so yeah, I think you got to give a lot of credit to him. Um, and across all of his stories, like he clearly has a, an imagination that was, you know, nearly unmatched in children literature. Like he comes up with some of the most like iconic ideas 
um, that we've ever seen. Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely give him credit. Um, is it one of my favorite reads? No, but um, for a children's book, you know, that's that's quite dated. I still had a good time with it. Well, I guess this is a good time to move into the film, which is renamed Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. This film was directed by Mel Stewart and it came out in 1971. And it's notably a musical yep. um, with some really iconic songs, actually. Like you think of Absolutely. the Candyman. That's yeah. that, you know, is almost outside of the scope of of the legacy of this film at that point at this point. Like it's like. People just sing that song, and I don't. And I don't think some of the time they know they remember or like uh, connect it yeah. to this film. I, I wouldn't have been able to remember if I had heard this song in a vacuum that it was from this movie. Um, but it's it's definitely a good one. It really, the, I was. I think there's only one kind of stinker in this movie, and that's um, Charlie's mom's song. I think it's yeah. called like "Cheer Up Charlie" or something. Yeah. It's bad. Like it was so bland, so boring. I I had no memory of this song existing, and I've seen this movie a bunch of times. Yeah, me either. So I, I was quite surprised when I'm like listening to it. I'm like, man, I didn't even know this was here. The the other thing that I didn't remember about this film was the, the the small vignettes of like the news and everything building up the golden tickets, and they're pretty funny. Like a lot of yeah. that stuff plays pretty well, and uh, it's like a satire on like you know, the 24 hour news cycle and some of the other stuff that was like building up around that time. But so, yeah, what's what's your history with it? And what did you think on this viewing? This is one of those movies that I would watch a lot as a kid. Um, it was one of those movies we would show in school. I think we talked about this with Wizard of Oz. That was like the other big film that was always showed. But this one, um, maybe even more so. It, for whatever reason, it was considered like the safest movie. So you just threw it on. Uh, you have a substitute, you throw on this one. I think you usually start it around the point where they're entering the the factory. Because I think a lot of this early stuff is less clear because I didn't see it as much. Um, but of course, I actually, I've seen it other places. I've watched it in its entirety, you know, other other times. Um, but because of it, I have a ton of nostalgia for this film. And something about Gene Wilder's performance as Wonka has just stuck with me in a way that other performances don't. His effortless coolness. Like, he is one of the coolest characters I think I've ever seen. Like, it, from the jump, as soon as he walks on stage or, 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 you know, comes out with his cane and then does his little role, like, he is the movie at that point. And I assume that's why they renamed it, right? Like, this guy is the movie. This is the, the draw. And um, all of a sudden, I care much less about Charlie. Now, Sure, I still follow the story, but like now all I'm doing is watching for Wonka and watching for Gene Wilder because, man, is this an iconic performance. I think in film history, this is like up there. It's one of the most. There's so much going on with this character. He's so eccentric. He's got like a darkness to him. He's like he's like obviously willing to put children in danger, but then also he cares the world about children and candy and spreading joy and whimsy. When actors were auditioned for the role in New York, Gene Wilder auditioned and at that point the director Stewart and Wolper one of the producers they realized they could stop looking at because they just right away knew um, Stewart said he was captivated by Wilder's quote humor in his eyes and said his inflection was perfect he had a sardonic demonic edge that we were looking for Wolper the producer tried to suppress Stewart's eagerness for the actor as he wanted to negotiate the salary regardless the director ran out into the hall as Wilder was leaving and offered him the part on the spot <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he recognized greatness, man. Um, I love that 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 sardonic, uh, demonic presence that that he brings to it is like so mysterious, 
and his motivations are so strange and what's going he's so eccentric what is his deal what is he doing here like why is he even doing this whole thing like there's so many questions you have and the movie doesn't answer them it just like he just does one wild thing after another but the whole time he gives this vibe like he's the smartest guy in the room he is also like just very aware of everything that's happening as if it was planned. He's just absolutely captivating, man. And it's something that I've just never seen another version of Wonka do. So I'll just go ahead and say that the depth did not do this for me. <laughs> we'll see if uh, Timothy Chalamet can pull it off. Uh... Yeah, I haven't seen the movie. That's, that's fair. Oh, I will say Jeremy Allen White from The Bear. People have pointed out. I'm not the first to notice this. He looks like Gene Wilder in this film, like crazy. Like, it, it, I don't know if he could do this role. Like, he, I am impressed with him from the bear, but like, yeah, man, he looks a lot like him. Totally. A few things about about Gene Wilder as Wonka. You, I think you can read. There are some who read into the, the subtext of the film and you see that the guy, I'm forgetting his name, but the rival chocolate maker keeps popping up and he's always there when the children pull the tickets and the, like some people worth. Yeah, and some have read into it and said, like, does is because he was ultimately working for Wonka, does yeah. that mean that Wonka knew where the tickets were going to be and he kind of orchestrated which kid was getting them? And then on yeah. top of that... Because how, how else is he allowed to be there? Again, I, I just kind of hand-waved his magic, but... Did he also possibly... Like, if you, if you see throughout the movie, the transportation vehicles that they're taking get smaller with fewer and fewer seats. And it's like, did he orchestrate kind of leaving yeah. behind some of these kids along the way? See, and... I, I'm telling you, it seems like he knew this was going to happen all along. Yeah. That whole honesty test, by the way, is a change um, with Slugworth. Like, so this, this character, you know, is is not like this in the book. Um, and, yeah. and there is no honesty test given to Charlie in that sense of like, what, is he actually going to be a spy? And you mentioned stuff about just a Wonka in general. And, and I, same thing. I saw this movie growing up countless times. I definitely saw it in school, whether we saw bits and pieces or the entire thing. Um, but I also found myself at times frightened of of Willy Wonka, both yeah. like equally, uh, you know, enthralled, but also kind of frightened, especially nearing the end when he's yelling at them. Uh, <laughs> the absolutely unhinged uh, boat ride. Yeah. Mel Stewart, I talked about, is, is an American film director and producer who often worked with producer David L. Wolper, who I mentioned also, uh, at whose production firm he worked for 17 years before going freelance. Stewart directed the musical fantasy Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory. He also directed other features, including If It's Tuesday, This Must Be Belgium, One is a Lonely Number, Running on the Sun, The Bad Water, 135. Stewart also directed featured documentaries, including the 1964 Oscar-nominated JFK documentary Four Days in November and the 1973 concert film Watt Stacks. He also directed or produced over 180 films throughout his career. So I heard that this was kind of early on in his career where, as far as like he'd mostly done documentaries to this point. Right. Um, so it, it kind of tracks with the way the first act of this movie is where it is like this you know, we're getting all these different little snippets from like different parts of society and, and it's you're getting a look at the news cycle and you're and you're getting these little vignettes um, that were quite funny, honestly, and hold up pretty well. Uh, the humor of this movie in general, I thought, holds up pretty, pretty well. It does. I agree. Um, the, and, you know, there's some problematic stuff in here, too, that I think is like maybe some some lingering parts of of maybe Dahl's original work. But um, we can get into that in a little bit. I want to talk about how this came to be because you mentioned this is early in Mel Stewart's career. Uh, the idea for adapting the book into a film came when Mel Stewart's 10-year-old daughter read Roald Dahl's book. 
and asked her father to make a film out of it. Stewart showed the book to producer David Wolper, who happened to be in the midst of talking with the Quaker Oats Company regarding a vehicle to introduce a new candy bar for its Chicago-based Breaker Confection subsidiary, which has since uh, been renamed the Willy Wonka Candy Company and sold to Nestle. Wolper persuaded the company, which had no previous experience in the film industry, to buy the rights to the book and finance the picture for the purpose of promoting a new Quaker Oats Wonka bar. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, as you yeah, can tell, it's like a giant product placement for their yep. candy bars. They, someone saw it and was like, I can sell a hell of a candy bar off of this book. Yeah. yeah. And it works. I mean, uh, you know, you can. I think you can still go out and buy Wonka-related candy bars. Yeah, I, know I was you thinking about. I don't know up. if I've ever actually had a like a Wonka bar like that. And like in the movie, it was interesting because it looked like there was like marshmallow in the middle of it, and I, and I actually got a good look at it. it wasn't just a pure chocolate bar. Yeah. I don't know if it's like that at all in real life, or if it's just a chocolate bar. Well, I think the one you're talking about was there were like multiple that Charlie got that last time when he found the coin in the drain and he brought it. He yeah. got one type of bar and then he also got just a standard Wonka chocolate bar. And I think the first one was that marshmallow looking one. So when this company bought the rights and financed the picture and everything, Wolper, the producer, and Roald Dahl agreed that Dahl would also write the screenplay. Though credited in the film, Dahl had not delivered a completed screenplay at the start of production and only gave an outline pointing to sections of the book. Wolper called in David Seltzer for an uncredited rewrite after Dahl left for creative differences. Wolper promised to produce Seltzer's next film for his lack of a credit as they needed to maintain credibility by keeping Dahl's name attached to the production. Also uncredited were several short humorous scenes by scriptwriter Robert Kaufman about the golden ticket hysteria. Okay, so that was a different writer. Interesting. I think it's interesting that, you know, back then they needed to keep Dahl's name on the project so that yeah. people would still be buy into it for those reasons, fans of the book. Well, he was a big deal. He was he was a very popular author. Seltzer, uh, who did some of those rewrites, um, created a recurring theme that had Wonka quote from various literary sources, which I'm sure you picked up on. Um, yeah, those... yeah. He, he made a, definitely a Shakespeare reference. He was he was saying things in like French and German. Um, yeah, definitely. It, it, it was part of that whole mysterious smartest man in the room vibe that he that he was given off definitely yeah and uh some of the things that he referenced were arthur o'shaughnessy's ode oscar wilde's the importance of being earnest samuel taylor coleridge's the rhyme of the ancient mariner mm -hmm. and william shakespeare's the merchant of venice yeah pretty cool to see like uh you know a writer wanting to get some material that i'm sure he was a fan of into a character like this an eccentric kind of brilliant character uh, I think it's a cool, I thought it added a lot to his character. He kind of whispers lines to people here and there and then makes comparisons to the scenarios they might be in to these like classic works. Uh, I actually think it adds a lot to the film. Yeah, I agree, man. It, it Like I said, it was all this perfect texture to give to this already, you know, stunning performance. There's a few other things with the development here. Uh, they There's a few reports of why they changed it from Charlie in the Chocolate Factory to Willy Wonka. And it's not necessarily just because they wanted to be more about um, Willy Wonka, as far as I could tell. They also, I guess, during this time period when this was coming out, they realized that there was a possible connection to uh, U.S. soldiers in Vietnam calling Viet Cong Charlie or Victor Charlie was like the code name mm. for Viet Cong. And okay. uh, then they was shortened it to Charlie. And I guess that was so present in people's minds at the time that they felt that they wanted to, to get away from that association. Yeah. And then, of course, we've also talked about uh, the 
depiction, the original depiction of the Oompa Loompas in the source material. And when this was announced, when it was announced that this was going to get adapted, the NAACP and, and many other groups were protesting it because of the depiction of the Oompa Loompas. And so Stewart addressed the concerns for the film, making them green and orange kind of, you know, like, I, I guess going along, I don't know when those edits came from Roald Dahl, but do you think that came yeah. in response to the film? I didn't see a particular year. I think it was before the film, but maybe around the same time the film was going to come out was, was like when they decided to do the revisions um, because the outcry was beginning to grow. I, I didn't see like a clear timeline on it. The, you know, those are all concerns of the time. So they wanted to kind yeah. of a, a change it. Um, but, you know, when I don't know the way that I look at the Oompa Loompas, I'm like, I still don't know how you can get away from this still seeming like if when you have the context of our world, it's just like it's clear where they're getting where the inspiration possibly came from in the first place. And like the thinking was, yeah, I talked before about the casting and, and the auditioning for Willy Wonka. But then Wilder said that if he was going to accept the role, he he wanted to make sure that he could do one specific thing. And this is actually a famous story that I'd heard of before. Okay. Um, he said, when I first when I make my entrance, I'd like to come out of the door carrying a cane and then walk toward the crowd with a limp after the crowd sees Willy Wonka. Uh, they all whisper to themselves and then they become really quiet. And as he walks toward them, the cane stays on the cobblestone, he keeps walking and then, you know, does his role and pops back up. Um, and that was a thing, I guess, that was like a deal breaker for, for Gene Wilder. He's like, this is my idea. I want it to be put in the film. And Stewart said, what do you want to do that for? And Wilder answered, quote, from that time on, no one will know if I'm lying or telling the truth. Yeah. Uh, Wilder was adamant that he would decline the role otherwise. And what a great moment it is. Okay, so we're going to move into the plot now. Charlie Bucket is a poor paper boy who often looks inside a candy shop but cannot afford to buy sweets. Going home one evening, he passes confectioner Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, where a tinker tells him that no one ever enters or leaves the building. Charlie's bedridden, Grandpa Joe reveals that Wonka had shut down the factory because rival confectioners sent spies to steal his recipes. Production resumed three years later, but the gates remained locked, and to prevent more sabotage, the original workers were not rehired, leaving their replacements a mystery. Wonka announces that he has hidden five golden tickets in chocolate Wonka bars. Finders of the tickets will receive a factory tour and a lifetime supply of chocolate. The first four tickets are found by Augustus Gloop, a gluttonous German boy, Veruca Salt, the spoiled daughter of a wealthy English father, and the two Americans, Violet Beauregard, who chews gum constantly, and Mike TV, who is obsessed with television. As each winner is announced on television, a sinister-looking man appears and whispers to them. Charlie also takes advantage of his birthday and a gift from Grandpa Joe to open two Wonka bars, hoping to find a ticket, but he doesn't find one in either of them. A news report reveals the fifth ticket was found by a millionaire in Paraguay, causing Charlie to lose hope. The next day, Charlie is on his way home from school when he finds money in a gutter and uses it to buy a Wonka bar for himself and Grandpa Joe. Walking home, Charlie overhears that the millionaire forged the fifth ticket. Charlie opens his remaining Wonka bar, discovering the final ticket. On his way, he encounters the sinister figure who spoke to the other winners. Introducing himself as Slugworth, one of Wonka's competitors, he offers a cash reward for a sample of Wonka's latest creation, the Everlasting Gobstopper. I, I like your theory you proposed earlier. Like maybe this was some sort of like scouting process. Did he, did Slugworth, was he like a, on behalf of Wonka, making sure certain kids got these bars? I don't know. <laughs> it depends on like how, how seriously we want to take the you know, the, the realism of this story, because it's so strange that he's just there for all of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I want to ask you of these, of these kids, um, the four other children, they're all pretty fucking awful. 
Which one is the one that you find to be the most grating? The one that is the worst to you? Yeah, it's got to be the the one that's like got the millionaire father for sure. You talking you talking about Veruca? Yes, Veruca. Yeah, I agree. She's the worst. Um, you know, the 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 movie and the book definitely puts the blame on the parents and saying that, you know, they overspoiled her. Um, but man is she bad and um seems to be a soci- sociopath and I know that a lot of kids like it takes them a little while to develop em- empathy as children, but um, she is one that is, is is very easy to dislike in a way that some of the others really aren't that bad. Um, you know, one's like just a gum chewer who seems to be competitive. Um, her her main thing is she seems to just like rudely chew gum a lot. And her whole song she gets from the Oompa Loompas is about how you shouldn't chew gum all the time. A little bit's okay, but all the time's just really bad and annoying. This I don't know how much this kid deserves her, her fate. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, um, um, Mike TV the other just kid, loves like, screens. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say the other kid might just like have some ADHD and like loves loves television. Like I, uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah, can't relate, huh? Oh man, the Oompa Loompa song for him in the book that would like was a really long diatribe about how people should read rather than watch TV and yeah. watch screens. Uh, was Which I understood, funny. like Doll, you know, being yeah. that generation, I'm sure he felt that way very strongly. That kids well, you should, know, should be yeah. reading. And bo- they used to have books everywhere. They used to love reading. Yeah. Now it's all TV. It was so funny to to compare that to, like, what you hear about today about, like, you know, our screens that we carry with us everywhere. And I think there are a lot of real concerns with our over-reliance on screens. But it is funny to hear this early version, even back in the, you know, the sixties and the seventies where it was like, Oh, kids these days are spending too much time looking at their screens. They used to go outside. They used to read. Yeah. Didn't have to, you know, ever watch a commercial when you read a book, which is funny because nowadays on e-readers, they're like filled with commercials, which is bullshit. <laughs> it's a whole nother topic. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny too. Like it just, it's a moving goalpost, right? Like kids, like, like, uh, I think during our generation, it was also like, uh, video games. Why are kids playing video games? Sure. And th- and then it, and now I think it's shifted even more. So like kids won't play video games now, but they will obviously. But they won't read. They won't read books. They won't even watch long movies. They got to watch their short short form TikToks, and that's all they're doing these days. And it's always like this moving thing where each generation yeah. has something else that's like, oh man, they're not even doing the normal stuff anymore. There's definitely a vibe of kids these days in a lot of these like uh, criticisms that these each of these children embodies. Um, and it's like there's a bit of like old man rolled doll getting upset about, you know, obnoxious children that he's encountered over the years. I don't know. That was the vibe I got from it. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, also a writer, right? He's like, I wish kids were still reading my material. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the the art form that I partake in is the, the most important one. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things that stand out to me in this summary. The Tinker. Uh, I yeah. never really understood what that was growing up, and it was just a dude with a cart full of knives and axes. Yeah, and like, knives and axes and cleavers. Yeah. Is he like? I, is he a tinker? I don't know. I thought maybe he was like a like like a roaming butcher who's just like selling, <laughs> maybe chopping up random animals he finds. I don't know. Yeah. Like, and that, very that just bizarre. goes to show there's this weird underlying like darkness in the story, yeah. that, like kind menacing. of menacing. It scared me. Like there were things yeah. about this story when I was a child that I was like. What the hell is happening and why is everybody so seem so threatening? Yeah, it's funny because like I think in James and the Giant Peach, we talked about how there was a, a big element of that to the book, whereas I actually found the book version of this to have less darkness and like, yes, some fucked up stuff happens to these children in both versions. But like outside of that, it was a little less dark than the movie even ends up being. I guess that's true. Well, um, because for one, I mean, skipping ahead, like we see them, the children walking out of the factory at the end and they're all alive. 
Yeah. And like some of the, like they're still kind of messed up. Like one of them's still kind of blue. One of them's been stretched and all the stuff in the movie. All we do is, is hear from Willy Wonka. He's like, Oh, they're fine. You know, they're, they're leaving. We never see that. So he could be lying once again. And he might've just murdered four children and maybe some of their parents too. Yeah, but it's all good because he's going to give Charlie a chocolate factory and his family can stay there. So we got to talk about Grandpa Joe here. Uh, Grandpa Joe, the infamous, infamous infamous Grandpa Joe. I mean, we can't like this has been said. The guy is clearly mooching like he's been in bed for 20 years. And then as soon as something fun and free and you get to go to a chocolate factory, all of a sudden it's I've got a golden ticket. He starts singing the song, even though it's not his golden ticket. I was like, what the fuck? And then he's like hopping out of bed, doing a dance. All of this has been an act, I guess. Um, he's the worst. Uh, in the book, I will say it does a little better job of explaining this guy's 90 plus years old. And he has this special connection with Charlie where whenever Charlie's around, he is sort of like invigorated and, and seems a little more youthful. And then the, the sort of miracle of this moment creates another miracle. And when he gets out of bed and can move, it is like, oh my God, this is a miracle that you're able to do this. And it's part of the magic of the moment. Whereas in the movie, like, I don't know how clear that is as much as it's just like, what the fuck, dude? I thought you couldn't get out of bed. Now you're doing (laughs) a little dance number. What the hell? Well, he, yeah, he, and he has the, some of the mannerisms, like he can't walk that remind me so much of like the scarecrow from the wizard of Oz. And that's something I want to bring. You already brought up the wizard of Oz and, and these two movies are so like connected for some reason for a lot of people, they came out decades apart yeah but they are reminiscent the the obviously the musical element but like the fantastical the fantasy elements of it um yeah, yeah it, it, there's, you're right there's a lot. They, they are they're right there in my mind too like near each yeah. other and like i said there's a part of the reason is i saw them both in school so maybe that happened with a lot of people maybe some but there was also like a, a push originally stewart didn't want this to be a musical and then like the producers kind of pushed and said like look at the success of a few movies and and you know wizard of oz was on that list um, and yeah, just something about the way that the songs come out felt so like classic musical. It feels that like it's it's um, a response to like a Wizard of Oz. Like it's it's continuing down that that lineage. And um, but interestingly, this did not do well in the box office when it first came out. This this film cost like three million dollars to produce, which is a shoestring budget for the time that they were kind of just putting together what they could. Considering and, some of the practical effects, like that's actually kind of shocking. Yeah, well, so so even for that time period, some of the there were critics of the of the film said like you know the practical effects don't look great, and so I think like again I think this movie is so correlated with the Wizard of Oz. People think of it as like almost the same time period, and the effects, especially like people our generation that weren't around when these were coming out, um, the effects like are of the level of something like Wizard of Oz. But Wizard of Oz was doing the best they possibly could at the time. Whereas it feels like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, while there is some great practical effects work and great production design, some of it, like when you go out into that chocolate room, the description and the buildup of like going into that first room with the mushrooms all over the place, it felt like a Wizard of Oz set in, you know, 1970. Okay, yeah, than I can 1940. See that. I will say that the, the chocolate uh, waterfall did not look too appetizing to me. <laughs> Something yeah. about that just looked like like a sewage coming out of a chute. Like it was not. Was like <laughs> I do not want to drink any of that. No, thank you. Well, you know, you you picked up on it. Uh, they said that it stunk. Apparently, the oh, actors boy. said that it stunk. They said that it was like 
just like water basically that they had died and i think they they did try to add some some chocolate like powder to it to make it more like oh, and probably give it more consistency started to go bad or something yeah and then it, i guess it stunk and they had to put like chemicals in it to like make it smell better some some salt and some other stuff to make it like not smell terrible so um, some just horrid mix <laughs> yeah so it was probably as gross as you imagine it is honestly <laughs> I honestly, I, I thought that room looked good. Uh, you know, yeah, maybe it is uh, more akin to something you'd see from Wizard of Oz. I'll grant you that, but I don't know, man. Part of it was just watching it in 4K and being able to see every little every little thing where you're like, that looks kind of plastic, you know, and like that kind of thing. But I'm like, I, I tend to give older movies a lot of benefit of the doubt. I used to watch it on those little fucking screens they'd roll out into your classroom and you couldn't see hardly anything. It was very blurry. Um, there was probably lines down the, you know, down the TV because um, you were watching on some old VHS tape. Um, yeah. So I, that room of imagination, that room of, you know, wonder, um, fully was just like, a, I don't know, like a dream. I, I, it, if you watch it at the right age, the idea of going into a room where just like everything's edible and it's all candy, like it's pretty, it's pretty exciting, pretty fun. Oh, don't get me then, wrong. Yeah. When yeah. I first saw this, I was totally blown away. I was like, this is awesome. I want to go to this Wonka factory. I want to go there. Um, I did. I, I read here too, that like the, the chocolate river didn't have some cream in it as well. And the original oh, concoction turned blood red as, as the cream and everything started to spoil. So that's what they're talking <laughs> no. about. It was horrible. Was it true that like the actors had not seen this this set and, and when they were first yeah. brought in that was like their genuine reaction to it? So the way that Stewart directed this, he did a lot of that where like he didn't want most of the cast to have seen some of these things. He didn't oh. he, he kept like wanting to surprise the actors so that all their first reactions were genuine. So yes, like them the, all the kids coming out uh, that was all the first genuine reaction, at least, you know, some of it they, they, yeah. uh, that we, we see in the film. And they then had like, to have Wonka's... done some takes with, the, with that, like going down the steps and yeah. the going back up and all that stuff. And by the way, like maybe it's not even the most iconic moment in this film because you could argue maybe the bridge mo or the, the, the boat moment going through the tunnel. Yeah. But I think this might be it. And it's the intro to this room and him starting the song like that might be the moment from this movie and that propels it into being one of the moments in all of movie history. It's like, it's, it's up there with Dorothy singing and, and wizard of Oz is like just an absolutely yeah. iconic moment. It definitely evokes that. I, I don't, I think I put it on a different tier than that, but I can understand where you're coming from. Definitely. Like it's, it is like, you when think that of... little like haunting melody starts and it's like, it's, it's so slow and he just starts singing the song and it's really incredible yeah. just this one i think of just iconic movie moments it's like it would probably make my list at the very least uh my list of like if i were to list top 10 scenes of all time just as far as like importance being memorable being from iconic films like it it would probably make my top 10. yeah this scene is great and like you said that that initial i think reaction shot of the of the kids is that that moment that stewart was going for and then there's the moment when uh wonka rolls like this a lot of the cast didn't know that was going to happen that's another genuine reaction so he continued to do this and like um some of the stuff in the in the bridge they, they weren't prepared for and then the the we've already talked about the gene wilder yelling scene that scene at the end um uh, where he's talking about like you know everybody failed and then and you lose get oh, out of here you lose good day sir yeah that all of that <laughs> I guess the, when he was rehearsing for it he he was more disappointed than he was angry and so that was a surprise for both Charlie and and uh, Uncle Joe Grandpa Joe. Grandpa Joe yeah <laughs> yeah old Grandpa Uncle Joe.
while we're talking about the set design here and the art direction overall, uh, Harper Goff was the art director for this film. Um, and maybe people aren't super familiar with this person, but it is the same art director of another project we talked about earlier this year, Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Oh, wow, okay. Many of the special effects he worked on, he actually designed the Nautilus exterior and some of the submarine interiors and all that. So, yeah, same what a, person. Yeah, what an incredible looking movie that was. Yeah, that was yeah. a fun one. We're going to continue to talk about his performance, but... He always has these little like rejoiners whenever somebody questions him, whenever somebody like says something to him. He's so sarcastic and deadpan. Um, at one point, uh, someone asks him a question and he's just immediately, I'm sorry, all questions must be submitted in writing. Um, and he just doesn't answer it. And just like, uh, you know, the, 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 the moment where he has them all sign the, uh, the big contract where you can't even read it. He's just so flippant. It's all kind of a joke, but it's all kind of not a joke. Um, and it's, it's a lot of it is like, you know, indemnity and being like, if you die in, in this, uh, factory, then I'm not at fault. You assume is it somewhere on that contract they're all signing. Yeah. Um, and he kind of tricks them all into signing it too. And like, it's, he, that's, he continues to be this, this figure where you're like, I don't know about this guy. One of my favorites that always has stood out to me is where he, the kids are doing something. He's like, no, please stop. Don't do that. And then, and then eventually they like get their comeuppance and, and then his reaction always is no don't don't do that no please don't and he yeah. like stops caring and then lets them like fall into it because he's like almost annoyed at the fact that like he's like these this could have been one of the kids that inherited the the chocolate factory here like i'm you know for x y or z reason but uh this his delivery is always so on point and so funny it's so funny and that whole you know we're still in that big room when we're talking about it here like a lot of that, there was actual candy and like, you know, there's like some of the gross stuff. People are scooping cream and whipped yeah, cream in their mouths and eating ropes and stuff. But some of that's real and some of yeah. it isn't. Uh, some of it was like styrofoam and balloons covered in things. And then like a part of it might have been edible. Um, but they sell it pretty well, that that whole room. And like you said, my imagination as a kid, I was just like, I mean, who doesn't love candy? And like, it's like sure. a place made of candy. I feel candy. like when you're a kid, you haven't like, you haven't like had enough times where you've eaten so much candy that you feel ill yeah and maybe it's happened to you maybe but like it, it didn't it hasn't happened enough whereas i feel like once you start getting older you've had enough times where you're like man i just had too much fucking sugar tonight and i feel sick and the, if that happens to you enough times you start like practicing a little more moderation at least in my experience i also um, think it's yeah, like you, yeah, you're you, not thinking about that as a kid <laughs> i think as an adult too it affects you differently like you just That's kids like are, they're pretty bulletproof and they can they can go through quite a lot of it but yeah like i you know i eat too much of something that's not even that sweet and i'm like oh it's just a little bit too much sugar for me and you know yeah. it's not it doesn't take a, an entire candy bar these days to mess me up uh but uh, you know we've talked about Roald Dahl and and I wanted to definitely touch in on like his reaction to all of this because obviously like he was supposed to write a screenplay there was some stuff that happened with that he was they did not use it his screenplay and they they adjusted a lot of things so he actually disowned the film and was infuriated by the plot deviations he considered the music to be saccharine sappy and sentimental well one of those songs I will totally agree <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's Charlie's he, mom's song yeah it's, it's not a good one that that one's definitely like a if you you know if you've seen it before you can fast forward that part but Completely we didn't for the sake of the podcast and other iconic songs yeah uh, he was also disappointed because the film, quote, placed too much emphasis on Willy Wonka and not enough on Charlie. And because Gene Wilder was cast as Wonka instead of Spike Milligan, who was his preference to play Wonka. Authors don't always know best when it comes to adaptations. And speaking as a writer, like it pains me to say, but yeah. that is sometimes true. 
In 96, uh, Dahl's second wife, Felicity, commented on her husband's objections toward film adaptations of his work, saying, quote, They always want to change a book's storyline. What makes Hollywood think children want the endings changed for a film when they accept it in a book? Yeah, because they're different mediums. Different things yeah. work differently. Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll get to our, our uh, vote at the end here, which, which is the better version. So I, I'll hold a little bit of my commentary on that. Um, I do also have to just highlight the line where uh, Wonka says, the suspense is terrible. I hope it will last. Like just this <laughs> like, sort of demonic little state. Like, that kind of stuff is just so good, man. Totally, yeah. And, and so I've talked about how the film didn't do very well in theaters, the box office. They made just a million dollars on their initial investment. But 10 years on or so, as home release starts to become more and more feasible, uh, the movie gets a huge cult following. And in fact, this movie is known as one of the biggest cult successes, cult film successes of all time, because it didn't do gangbusters on its initial release. And based on TV, based on TV broadcasting and the home release, uh, it's it has the reputation that it now has. And it's it's become this iconic piece of film history. And and it How is many times have we talked about stuff like that with movies, man. Like uh, it's so it's so sad to me to, to hear about movies you know, not quite living up to the, their expectations and then just getting written off. And it's like, give it a chance to, to, to get a little momentum going. Sometimes movies are like, they gotta, they gotta like marinate for a little while in public opinion and, you know, word of mouth will spread. People will start finding it. You know, it'll find its, its audience, even if, if maybe they didn't realize they were their audience. Right. So after it found some more success, uh, the studio planned to adapt the sequel, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, and Roald Dahl so disliked the film that he refused to sell the rights to his subsequent books. Um, mm. There was talk of writing a screenplay for an original sequel, but this was abandoned and no sequel ever made it. Wow. So this is one of those, man. We've had a few where it's like the author just really hated the adaptation. Uh, the Shining comes to mind. Um, we talked about like the never-ending story. Like there's, there's been a few of these um, to varying degrees. But where where people are like disowning it, wanting their names taken off of it, yeah, um, pretty dramatic stuff sometimes. And and it's 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 shocking how often it seems to coincide with actually a good movie. Every now and then it's like, yeah, that one was a stinker. I understand why they didn't want to be associated with it, but sometimes you're like, this is really fucking good. I don't know why they they really don't want to be associated with it. Very strange. Yeah, and and to talk about so uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, famous film critics, and at the time they you know they each gave their individual review. Uh, notably, they they also had a show eventually together where they would kind of go back and forth. I don't know if they had it at this point, but they were the two thumbs up thing for me yes. for the longest time growing up. That would be in every every like ad you saw for a new movie. If it got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, like that was in the tr in the trailer or whatever. They're legends. And, yeah, they're yeah, total yeah. legends in the in that industry. And, now we and just like, get certified fresh. I think is the thing that you'll no, see everywhere. Pat, dude, <laughs> I really, really ask people, please don't go off of the, the tomato meter because it's not. It's an aggregate score. I can go all the way down and in, deep into this. It's about the percentage of people who gave it positive reviews. It's not the the, the grade that somebody's giving it. So it's just right. like a really weird way to look at film criticism. Anyway, um, Roger Ebert gave the film four out of four stars, calling it probably the best film of its sort since The Wizard of Oz. It is everything that family movies usually claim to be but aren't. Delightful, funny, scary, exciting, and most of all, a genuine work of imagination. Willy Wonka is such a surely and wonderfully spun fantasy that it works on all kinds of minds, and it is fascinating because, like all classic fantasy, it is fascinated with itself. And then Gene Siskel gave the film two out of four stars, writing, 
anticipation of what Wonka's factory is like is so well developed that its eventual appearance is a terrible letdown. Sure enough, there is a chocolate river, but it looks too much like the Chicago River to be appealing. <laughs> the quality of the color photography is flat. The other items in Wonka's factory, bubblegum trees and lollipop flowers, also look cheap. Nothing in the factory is appealing. Interesting. So a good kind of a disagreement there between them, which is it happened on occasion. That's their MO. Yeah, that's kind of like they, they kind of they would agree on things often, but they also respected each other, but had differing opinions fairly yeah. often. It, that I like that that act of pure imagination that uh, was this uh, first Ebert. one. Was that Ebert yeah. <laughs> um, said? And, and I totally agree with that. And like it reminds me of a moment in the film where um, Wonka grabs, I think it's Verka Salt by the cheeks <laughs> and delivers this line after she, she is dismissive of, of uh, I think it's the wallpaper. He says, we are the music makers and the dreamer of dream dreamers of dreams. Like, I don't know. Like it, it was like, so it kind of came out of nowhere in the moment, but it seemed like almost more of a message about creativity and art and like imagination and what's important to Wonka and what should be important to creatives everywhere. Yeah. And I love that, right? Like, and, and there's one point where somebody says that he's mad. They're talking about Wonka and they say he's mad or he's he's something. He's weird, something like that, um, or he's lost it. And Charlie says, well, there's nothing wrong with that or something like that. Like, it's OK to be weird. It's OK. And that's like kind of what Wonka is giving everybody permission and saying that we should seek that out. Like being different makes you, you know, have an interesting perspective. And everybody has a story to tell in those ways. And. And like, I love that he like is trying to get these children while they're young and he grabs her by the face and he's like, don't let them fucking like make you a robot. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, be be weird. Absolutely. And um, that's also a message that you could argue is behind a lot of Roald Dahl's work. Because a lot of his characters are in some way outsiders and in some way um, struggling to even get by. And yet there's something about them that makes them special, makes them different. And that difference becomes a strength. For them right like i'm thinking of, we haven't even covered matilda but obviously matilda is a prime example of that yeah um and there's a lot of versions uh down the road that we could potentially come to with Roald doll's work um and, and I, I do want to give him credit for that you know as much as we've we've criticized at times yeah um speaking of this that scene with the the wallpaper uh apparently there's a common belief that snozberry uh was a euphemism for a certain male body part um and that is <laughs> Not true, apparently. Uh, in in his nineteen forty eight book, Sometime Never, Roald Dahl stated that snozberries were the main diet of gremlins, described as a sweet, juicy red fruit that grew in orchards. So yeah. they're a fictional berry, though. Yeah, and whenever I think about snozberries, I think of uh, Super Troopers because there's like a guy that I think he takes like a bunch of mushrooms or something. And he's like licking the glass of, of the cop car after he's I been arrested. <laughs> and he's like, these snozberries taste like snozberries. That's what I always think about whenever I think of that. Speaking um, of like that, that wallpaper licking moment is gross. <laughs> it is gross. And the actor no, said you. that it was gross. They didn't flavor the wall or anything. They just licked oh, the God. dirty wall. Oh, and they probably had to do multiple takes too. Oh, man. Of course. Yeah. All right, so moving forward with the plot, arriving home with a golden ticket, Charlie chooses Grandpa Joe as his chaperone. Overjoyed, Grandpa Joe miraculously springs out of bed for the first time in 20 years. The next day, Wonka greets the ticket winners at the front of the gates of the factory and leads them inside. Each signs a discipline contract before the tour, which begins in the chocolate room, a whimsical indoor park with plants and flowers made of candy and a river of chocolate. The visitors meet Wonka's workforce, little people known as Oompa Loompas. During the tour, each child's character flaws caused them to give in to temptation, resulting in their unusual elimination. 
Augustus gets stuck up a pipe after falling into the Chocolate River. Violet swells up, becoming a giant blueberry. Veruca falls down a garbage chute, and Mike is shrunk to the size of a chocolate bar. The Oompa Loompas sing a song of morality after each disposal. While on tour, Charlie and Grandpa Joe enter the fizzy lifting drinks room and sample the beverages against Wonka's orders. The drink makes them float up and have a near-fatal encounter with a ceiling exhaust fan, but burping allows them to escape and descend to the ground. At the end of the tour, Wonka assures Charlie and Grandpa Joe that the other children will be fine before he hastily retreats to his office without awarding them the promised lifetime supply of chocolate. When they follow him in to ask about this, Wonka informs them that they had violated the contract when they stole the fizzy lifting drinks, thereby forfeiting their prize. Ashamed by his actions, Charlie decides to return the everlasting gobstopper to Wonka instead of giving it to Slugworth. Seeing that Charlie did not resort to revenge, Wonka joyously declares Charlie the winner, reinstates his prize, and reveals that Slugworth is his employee, Mr. Wilkinson. The offer to buy the gobstopper was a morality test for the kids, and only Charlie has passed. The trio enters the Wonkavator, a multi-directional glass elevator that flies out of the factory. During their flight, Wonka tells Charlie that he created the contest to find someone worthy enough to inherit his factory, so he will give it to Charlie and his family upon retiring, allowing them to move in as their new home. Okay, so th there are some changes there from, from book to movie, but I want to back up and talk a little bit more about the Oompa Loompas, and then we kind of leave them behind. Um, because I want to give them credit here as just a device. So Dahl has said that he wanted them to be akin to... There's this thing... like I'm not a super expert in like Greek uh, plays, but going all the way back to the Greeks there was an element of these choruses that would occur where a group of singers would come out and they would give a refrain, give a chorus that commented on the story that was being portrayed. And even though they were like a part of the play, they interacted very little with the characters on screen and they were actually usually speaking to the audience in sort of a fourth wall breaking act where they were commenting on like the overall themes, morals, message behind what we're viewing and the Oompa Loompas to me in both versions even though the songs are changed pretty dramatically are doing that and they're talking to us and I thought the way that uh Mel Stewart does this on screen is actually pretty clever it like, makes all these little music videos and we got we even got lyrics popping up on screen and it's kind of disorienting you're like why are they talking to me <laughs> because it seems it feels like they're talking to us right like they're addressing us the viewer about the lesson we should learn about these children. Um, and it's a very kind of strange moment, but also just super memorable. And um, it, it, it becomes a, an important role for these characters um, as, as, as uh, complicated as their, their creation is. Um, it's something that I do enjoy still in the movie here. They're always breaking that and, and turning it into like quote unquote music videos. Uh, that's sort of a musical hallmark as well, right? Like it's like, a, yeah. I think it goes all the way back to like, uh, Busby Berkeley That's and true. the way that all those musical moments do kind of like stop and have a little musical number for the benefit of the audience. But these yeah. ones are even more, like you said, like the, the walk, the, the Oompa Loompas are specifically like looking at the camera, singing it to you. And it's like that yeah. morality story. And so talking it's about the lessons you need to learn from these kids. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a play, almost like an aside in a play when they're like yeah. monologuing directly to the audience or like, like we're saying here, the, that, that musical thing where it breaks off into its own, other world almost for a little while yeah. to, to to do this like bigger than life performance and these aren't quite the berkeley kind of 
way over the top crazy choreographed ones but i think it's in the the spirit of something like that i wanted to mention too while we're talking about the oompa loompas they said that the makeup was extremely uncomfortable um and that the the makeup person would be on set because the hot studio lights would melt the makeup off their face causing causing them to need like constant touch-ups mm. um and the layer of makeup would become hard for the actors to to scrape off at the end of the day so it was like brutal Gross. they had to deal with that and then on top of that I, I did hear also that they were like huge partiers like they were they were like all travel <laughs> together i think it was nine men and one woman and they would all travel together they would jump in limos at the end of production they'd go party their asses off and i was Good like that's them. fucking cool that like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're just like mm -hmm. having the time of their lives and then they come in and they do this like choreographed dance and, and everything and they're, yeah. they're going through this like really difficult struggle together and, and i just think that's like some fun context yeah. for for the actors i do love that because there, there's of course a long history of hollywood um employing little people and like it, it's certain they tend to be cast as these like fantastical creatures which is very dehumanizing um and so you can get into all of that right like peter dinklage talking about famously how he didn't want to uh ever be cast in something like an oompa loompa so like um there's of course all of that going on, which we didn't even touch on really, as we've talked about all this other stuff with the Oompa Loompas, but we got to move on from them, you know, eventually. Um, and I wanted to ask you specifically about the tunnel sequence because one of it's it's probably my favorite scene, as much as I I think the other scene is probably the maybe the more iconic. This this moment is just so cool. It's so scary. It's like one of the early moments of like horror just creeping into a film that I didn't expect. Yeah. Um, as a kid and like it really sells Wonka as being unhinged and, and, and dangerous in a way that I was not expecting as a kid yep. from a character like this. So um, I just love this. And to this day, it holds up. It's a great, and by the end of it, he's screaming. Like it just, it's, it's wild. It's a wild, I put it on our, our Instagram, honestly, because it was such a, such a just memorable moment in the film. But yeah, any, anything about that? tons uh favorite that's okay. my favorite scene in the movie there's no question for me uh that that has always it terrified me like you said growing yeah. up it also they have like this these flashes there's so many things that it could be like uh seen as like torture uh like like flashing images in front of people yeah. and these and then flashing could, scary images and, you yeah. could also see it as like this like psychedelic drug trip kind of thing mm -hmm. um yeah there I, is a funny moment where it's i think it's veruca's dad kind of plays the like straight man throughout the movie where he's the one who's occasionally being like, and now he's singing. And he's like, <laughs> he, he's like the one guy who's like reacting in kind of a like understandable way to a lot of the stuff. And then eventually he, I think goes down the shoot. Yeah. He's, he's the one that was actually, I thought kind of funny in this moment. Cause he's the one who's reacting to this being so wild. Again, I, this is a moment where they didn't know how unhinged and deranged Gene Wilder was going to go. Um, and this has been just like reference, just talk about like legacy of some of these scenes and, and the things that it pops up and like, I saw online that there was like a Marilyn Manson music video called Dope Hat from a song called Dope yeah. Hat that, that was influenced by this. Awful dude, by the way. As yeah. We know, we know now about Marilyn Manson, but yeah. yeah. Um, and, and like, I remember recently there was like, I think one of the, the most recent Thor movie had the scene where he gets like strapped down with his arm strapped down and he starts going through a tunnel with oh, the yeah, same yeah. kind of lights and he's by the end of it screaming. And it's very much like a the same kind of Wonka esque uh, thing that's happening when they're I didn't going even through make it. that connection at the time. But you're right. That that is yeah. 
the way that Wonka is kind of saying faster, faster, they just like, and you see the Oompa Loompas using the crank on the back of the boat to like make it mm -hmm. go as fast as possible uh, with these images. Between that and the way that he's like singing into screaming and the lighting changing on his face, it just, it was so visually interesting. And then, and then the, the hard cut, the funny moment of them being like, we got to get off this thing. And then like it hard cuts to like everything's still and calm and they're yeah, there. And he's we like, are. we made it. <laughs> it's just like moving on. No explanation as to what that was all about. <laughs> it really seems like he's just delighting and freaking them all out. <laughs> uh, possibly actually, a psychopath. I don't know. <laughs> he he also be... is going to murder several of them. So Yeah, possibly. So just like us, a lot of other people have felt that that boat scene is super scary. It ranked number 75 on Bravo's The 100 Scariest Movie Moments. So like of all scariest films, movie horror wow. movies, everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's up made there the with list. the films, with the, the moment from Psycho. Which, by the way, what was the reference? You, you mentioned in our Psycho coverage that there was some sort of reference to Psycho in this movie. And I, I don't think I saw it. Oh, yeah. I meant to mention that, actually. Last week, I, I brought that up and I was like, keep an eye out. And I think I misread that in my Psycho research. And it's actually, there's a psycho reference in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the, the remake that eventually oh, gets played by Tim Burton. the Tim Burton movie. Okay, yeah. okay. I feel better now because I felt so bad that I didn't spot it. I was looking for it the whole time. Yeah. You put me on this like wild goose chase. Uh, and and uh, at the very least, it made me like pay hyper close attention to the movie. Yeah, good. That's what, that was the intention, you know, <laughs> totally. Uh, I also want to talk about other references. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory has been referenced in tons of films and TV shows, such as Malcolm in the Middle, My Wife and Kids, the American version of The Office, Saturday Night Live, that 70s show, animated TV series including Dexter's Laboratory, The Simpsons, Futurama, Family Guy, Hi Hi Puffy Ami Yumi, South Park, Rick and Morty, American Dad. like, And those are just like some of the comedic ones. Like there, there's like visual references there's there's all kinds of things that that uh have referenced this movie sure too many too many to list and <laughs> the song that we be trying <laughs> and the song that we talked about the candy man actually sammy davis jr recorded a version of that song and um it became his only number one hit it spent three weeks at the top of the billboard hot 100 chart in 1972 that's just crazy like it's not like gene wilder's version or anything like that it was mm -hmm. sammy davis jr recorded it and then that was his biggest hit ever um, and I think that's maybe partially why some people uh, think of the Candyman as separate from this movie some of the time, but it's very much from this. And it would have been, it's kind of a missed opportunity to not release the like slowed down melancholic version of Candyman song for the, for the Candyman film that the we, Candy we Man, covered yeah. before, right? Another <laughs> great example. I mean, ultimately like Candyman draws its name from that song, which was from Willy Wonka's the Chocolate Factory. Wow. Okay. So I want to talk about one of the, one of the big changes here. We get to this room where there are a bunch of geese, these giant geese that lay these golden eggs um, that then it's determined whether or not it's a good egg or a bad egg. This is very similar to what happens in the book, but it is, it, it's different. In the book, these are squirrels, and they're, they're choosing between good and bad nuts. It's like thousands of squirrels. And they're the ones who like basically carry Veruca off and toss her down the <laughs> garbage chute after she tries to grab one because she's like, I want one now. And then, you know, that, all, that whole thing plays out. Um, so yeah, that was one of the things that was changed, and I did see that in Tim Burton's version, he brought the squirrels back. So you know, I guess credit to him for that. He brought the squirrels back. <laughs> the uh, and I think the only other change that we haven't like gone out of our way to address is uh, the fizzy lifting drinks is completely yeah. made for the film. It's, there's there, I think there are fizzy lifting drinks, but Charlie yeah. doesn't use them. It's funny is they're mentioned, and it's even mentioned that you, the way you got down was by burping. Right. Um, but then I was shocked when that scene didn't play out, and yeah, that's a whole scene in the movie. It also creates the moment of like 
Charlie not being better than the rest in the sense that he still gives in to temptation. And it creates the moment where he has to like pass this morality test, which is another addition um, as we're talking about additions. This whole morality testing added. Um, another change, Wonka I- has a beard in the book. He's a little goatee whereas he doesn't have one here. And I also just found him to be a lot more like he's, he's eccentric, but he's kind of one note. Like he's, he's just is what he is. Like he's, there's not a lot of mystery to the character in the same way that I found in the, in the movie. Gene Wilder, man, what he did with that character, just he yeah. takes it to just such crazy lengths and he had so much control over it. He, he had specifics of how he wanted the, the wardrobe to look. And, and like, I think I, I read that reportedly they spent like $70,000 creating his costume at that time period. And he wanted like the top hat to be a shorter kind of top hat. So it looked weird and different. And the way the pockets were set up and just the, the, the fabrics they were using, he took it so seriously and, and clearly like really crafted this character. Um, and you were talking before about like the change to Charlie. I read that in the book, David Seltzer's found that Charlie was too perfect and had didn't have many flaws compared to the other kids. So he wanted to add in that subplot where they drink the fizzy lifting drink so that he also had something that he had to like own up to or overcome or show that like kid there aren't just like perfect kids out there. Yeah. Um and I think that honestly that 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 tension that's Although, built in admi- there. Admittedly, it's kind of Grandpa Joe's fault. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of encouraged everything it. else is, right? Yeah. Everything else is. Yeah. He should have known better even if the kid didn't. Come on. I mean, he's just like riding his coattails anyway. He just that's just like his time, his man. MO, man. He fails the morality test at the end. He's like, "No, we're going to give this thing to Slugworth. Screw you, Wonka, for not yep. giving us the 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 whole thing, the the lifetime supply." He's ready to storm out and it's charlie who's who actually passes the test yeah like man he doesn't deserve any by the way those gobstoppers which are so cool looking and so iconic uh when he sets that that scene is incredible by the way he just sets it down and then his his immediate change in demeanor wonka's change in demeanor uh after he like passes the test and he has another quote there all the half clocks and half everything it's very interesting so stewart said there that he wanted to uh he's like i couldn't bear going through the trouble of you know they they took like junkyard equipment they took everything in the area car batteries and everything to create like the workshops and everything and they spent all this time building up like real candy lands and things that that are built out of candy and he's like i couldn't bear to have his office just be a normal office so they spent a ton of time just splitting everything in half and everything in the room supposedly according to reports everything in the room is is in half other than the light bulbs okay wow so you can look for that next is there some like joke there like i I feel like there was like a pun that i'm not getting but i don't know i think it was just the heat he said that he couldn't bear to have it be just a normal yeah. office. So it's a way to make to it, weird. it something weird. Yeah. Eccentric and whimsical. Yeah, I guess so. Also with those gobstoppers, I, I did read that uh, in an episode of Pawn Stars, a combination of the original Everlasting Gobstopper and a Wonka bar prop sold for $105,000. This is like in the <laughs> 2017, I think, or something like that. Wow, okay. Um, and I did want to mention, too, while we're talking about references and the way that this pops up, there's that famous meme of... Uh, it's called like condescending Wonka where he like has his hand on his fist and he's like looking at them. Oh like, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. So people use that image all the time. And that's just like, you know, such an iconic thing in, in today's society that we don't even think about that came from this movie. Totally. I mean, it's a perfect moment where he like puts, yeah, props his face up on his hand and he's got this like, Oh really? Look like, but he's like smiling. Yeah. That's such a, uh, you're right. You see that everywhere. I guess we move into the flying elevator now, the glass elevator, which um, there's a little bit different, I guess in the book, um, Wonka pushes the button himself and in the movie it's important to Wonka that Charlie pressed the button again it's kind of a small change but 
both of the versions, it reads a little bit like they just fucking fly up into the ceiling and die. (laughs) (laughs) And then everything else we see is like the afterlife, like fantasy. Um, Okay. (laughs) A dark dark read of it is like, and now we can finally be done. And he just launches the glass elevator right into the ceiling. Um, Because it's only after that. Yeah. Then they're like flying around. Everything's full magic at this point, and you're gonna inherit my chocolate factory and all this stuff. And that's where he actually gets all warm and fuzzy with him. Um, but everything, yeah, leading up to that moment uh, was pretty dark. So maybe it ended in a really dark way. I don't know. I couldn't help but think about the how close this was to like the space race and everything, like in, in America oh, landing on the yeah. moon. Uh, you know, sixty nine. It so so how maybe there was a fascination with like rockets and flying sure. and technology, and so there's that that was like a moment to to show off that magic as well, um, using candy technology or whatever he uses to power all of his stuff, like like soda and and sugar power or whatever they say in the book. Mm-hmm. It was cool how they were also like above the town and it's a like hometown, and I think he even says like, "Wow, I didn't know it looked like this from above." Something is kind of magical about seeing a place from the sky. Like if you ever had the experience of like flying over or flying out of a city, even and just like looking out the window and like seeing it from that bird's eye view, it's really cool. Um, and there's something kind of magical about that. Um, it's not, it helps that they picked a place that has like a really consistent sort of fairy tale look to it. Um, and I did read that, like, they very specifically didn't say what country this was in, in the film, uh, in, 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 the, um, in, in the book, specifically, not even, not even all of the kids, like, they never said where any of the kids were from, whereas in the movie, we did get that, like, two of the kids are American, like, Mike TV, definitely American, and then I think the gum chewer, she's American, um, and then we got Gloops from Germany, and I forget where the other one was from, um, but yeah, you know, they, they all have these origins, but... Um, they still are vague about whether or not, whether or not this is like in England, even though I kind of read it as England, but maybe it's not. I don't know. So they shot a lot of it in Munich. Um, this is like August to November of 1970. And uh, yeah, I think he, he kind of liked the filmmaker said that he liked the fact that it's like ambiguous and kind of something mm-hmm. that people hadn't seen a lot on on in American audiences, at least hadn't seen. I, I thought it worked really well. I, you know, as much as it was weird that like all of his all of the kids in his like town that he lives in are like totally changing accents left and right like it just seems like a fairy tale land that doesn't exist i saw some fun things like the cast has stayed very close over the years they like tend conventions together still to this day wow. and when gene wilder passed i saw uh peter ostrom who played charlie in this movie he changed like his social media status to like inherited a chocolate factory on this date in 2016 just kind of saying that like that was officially the time that he now wow. has inherited the, the chocolate factory and i i saw that like uh, Peter Ostrom mentioned in a DVD commentary that he and Gene Wilder often ate lunch together and uh, they finished those lunches by sharing a chocolate bar for dessert as they walked back to set most of the time. <laughs> Just like like magical movie moments, stuff like that. Yeah. I, in, in a very different note, I just wanted to mention um, the Augustus Gloop stuff, how um, for a long time that was something that like bothered me as a kid because I was always like on the heavier side. And that was something that you always would worry about, like that people were perceiving you as this like glutton. And often like as a kid, like you can't help it. It has a lot to do with your diet and your biology. And it just like I feel bad for a lot of overweight kids and overweight people out there who have over the years felt like they were being viewed as these like gluttonous monsters. Um, And this this movie does kind of perpetuate that. And it's something that. You know, some people shrug it off and act like it's no big deal, but like it can be a big deal for a lot of people. And um, Gloop is just a very 
like all he does is eat a lot and like that's his only sin and like yet he's you know seems to need to die and i guess at one point he doesn't listen to wonka and like goes for the river um but i mean yeah he's one of those kids who doesn't really seem to deserve the fate where you could argue there are some who do yeah and like if you've interacted with older generations too like i, I think it's like it was such a f- focus point for for older generations yeah. as well that like they'd be my like, grandparents yeah we're yeah like they that. just talk about it a lot like it's like the always number one commenting thing on your physical appearance like oh you gained weight oh you lost weight oh you're too skinny oh you're too big you know always something sure so so there's some of that going on as well and, and uh i read somewhere somebody somebody noticed that like some of these kids line up with some of the dead seven deadly sins mm. um and how maybe that's sort of where it was going but there he, originally was going to be i think seven kids so that okay. would totally track with that if if gloop is gluttony and then Violet is actually pride because she's so prideful about the the fact that she's chewed it for so long and she's kind of rubbing it oh, in her friend's face. Okay, okay yeah. Um, Veruca would be greed with the fact that like she's wants everything from her dad at the sure. moment that she wants it. Sloth being Mike because he likes to watch TV and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, it, like so, and then I think people extrapolate it out even more and say that like. Uh, I think it may be in this maybe like a read from the book specifically that like Wonka represents like wrath or something or in some ways well, in the in the movie he yells at people a lot you know it does seem to have some angry moments so that you know take that for what you will maybe those are some some archetypes that that uh you know doll was working with and, and yeah and maybe maybe Justin. that was something he was doing more when there was when there was more kids but you know in the book but like it probably got cut it was like this is too much we need to we need to edit this down <laughs> And if you're speaking of things that got cut, there's there's also like this subplot thing at the very beginning of the book that's about like a prince of some other country. Oh yeah, and that, that was the, like yeah, kind of immediately striking me as palace kind of made of chocolate. Yeah, and they they he kind of played him to be like um, I don't know, not very intelligent, I would say, and some some yeah. of that kind of stuff. Uh, I think that's in Tim Burton's movie, by the way. Oh, interesting. We'll have to check back in yeah. on that if we do that for a bonus. <laughs> that movie has a whole other thing, like lots of things we can get into. So it'd probably be enough to do a meaty episode on. Um, but here we are at the end of this one, and it's time to cast our votes on which was better, book versus movie. Do you want to start? Sure. Uh, I mean, my answer is pretty easy. It's the it's the film in this in this case. The book had some things that really rubbed me the wrong way, and I, I really appreciate Dolls imagination in that story and i think he he created this like really fun idea of a story and something that like takes kids on an adventure which his stories tend to do but then you get this gene wilder performance and you get this like pretty iconic production design like the way that the film looks the way that it's this cult following that's built up over time and just what it means to me like the number of times that i've seen it and i still enjoyed myself this time those vignettes that I forgot about, those those are so funny. The like yeah. the 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 commentary that's being made about like like uh, news and and like how yeah. people get fascinated on things all oh, at the man. same time. I, and sorry, sorry jokes. to interrupt, but there was there was the teacher who felt like he was a Monty Python sketch like the whole totally. time. Yeah, I don't know if that's a, if like I'm recognizing that actor from something or what, but like man, I thought that was straight out of Monty Python. And maybe Very that's funny. another like kind of reaction for the time. Maybe Willy Wonka was taking in some of that Monty Python influence and adding some of that humor because I can actually see some of that throughout. Yeah, totally. Uh, okay, so it sounds like it's the movie for you. Um, I I am in full agreement, man. This this is one of those where I think the adaptation just completely outshines the source. Granted, full full uh, credit goes to the creator. There's so much of this story that comes right from him. But there's so much of what takes a special story and turns it iconic that I think exists in this version of the film. 
Um, I, I know that there is some some things that Tim Burton did well. Tim Burton is a filmmaker that I do have um, you know admiration for, and there's some of his movies we've already talked about um, that I liked. Um, but I think this is also my version of the movie that I just I just find to be the best by far. Um, haven't seen the new Wonka. I know it's a prequel. It's not really a remake of this or anything, but um, it, Gene Wilder's performance is, is just one of the most iconic ones, uh, you know, that I, I think it's up there of any performance for, for this role. So yeah, that being said, it's, it's got to be the it's got to be the movie for me. In an excellent career, Gene Wilder's comedic. He's dramatic. He's an amazing actor. And it, it, this is a career defining role like he this this is what everyone remembers him for. Um, amongst other things but this is the the one i would say that people think of so if you like this episode and you liked our coverage and you want to wish us uh merry christmas or happy holidays let us know in the form of a rating review on whatever app you chose to listen on or leave us a comment on youtube and like the video uh let us know how you feel about the whole debate uh with the oompa loompas or let us know whether you like the uh tim burton film more or if it maybe it's just more nostalgic for you because i know there was like a a group of kids coming up who like probably hit right at the right age for them, right? Like mid 2000s. It was probably the one they saw over this one. Um, so if it's the one that you have more nostalgia for, I'm curious about all of that. Um, and then, uh, you know, maybe one day we'll talk about the new Wonka, but um, love to hear from you in the comments. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. We're also on TikTok and Blue Sky. Just look for us on all those platforms and uh, we'd love to interact with you there. And if you'd like to support this podcast in another way, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Ink to Film. And on there, we have bonus episodes that we release every month. We are about to record one on the new well, I guess it's the newer Jumanji version. Welcome to the Jungle. I know there's been a sequel that I think has since come out to that movie. But we're about to record an episode on that, and that's going to come out for patrons only. Uh, so if you want to support us on there, patreon.com slash film. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's it for our, our holiday special. All we got left this year is our last looks episode, which will be coming out next week. Uh, it's an end of the year look back at everything we covered. We, we, we talk about what our favorite books are we read, our favorite films we watched. Um, you know, it's, it's just a really kind of laid back um, but enjoyable recap. And, and I always have a lot of fun with those episodes, and I hope that you join us for that. I'm excited for that one. And uh, it's a nice way to wrap up the year. We hope you guys have a great holiday. Uh, stay safe out there and spend some time with your family if you can. Don't listen to any Slugworths. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, until next time. Keep adapting. Keep adapting.